Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Karen Litzy, and I want to thank you for taking the time out and joining me today. Uh, it is a great episode with Dr. Jason Falvey. We talk all about rehab for the older adult or the baby boomers. Um, but before I get to that, I want to give a special shout out to the Physical Therapy Day of Service. This year, it will be held on Saturday, October 15th. In 2015, the first year of the PT Day of Service was a great success. The event recruited over 3,700 participants from all 50 states and 28 countries, raised over $750,000 for charity, and rallied the profession to volunteer nearly 11,500 hours of their time. And this year, we want to break all of that. We want more countries, we want more people, and we want more money raised for charity. Um, as with last year, all participants are encouraged to donate their time, experience, and passion to their community in any form. The PTDOS team believes that service embodies all that the physical therapy profession represents, whether it's working in a soup kitchen, cleaning up a park, or assisting a local nonprofit. The mission of PT Day of Service is to unite the profession to give back to the community and make the world a better place. Last year, I was an ambassador for New York City along with some other wonderful PTs, and my group teamed up with a local charity here in New York called New York Cares, and a team of over 25 of us that included PT students, PT student assistants, PT assistants, and PTs, went to an, an underserved school in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn to help beautify the school for the day. It was a lot of fun. And a special shout out to Columbia University because like 20 of the students came, which was amazing. Um, so this year, if you're looking to get involved with the PT Day of Service, it takes less than 30 seconds. Just visit ptdayofservice.com. You'll have the ability to pledge to participate, sponsor, donate to the initiative, and learn how to spread the word about the project's mission. So you can be a participant, you can be a sponsor, or you can choose to be an ambassador and help organize a group in your community. Um, it was great last year, and this year we're hoping to, like I said, break all of the records that we set last year. Okay, so go to ptdayofservice.com, get on it, folks, and uh, start giving back to your communities. Again, that's Saturday, October 15th. Okay, so on today's episode, like I said, I had the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Jason Falvey to the podcast. He's a PhD student, well, he's a physical therapist and PhD student currently at the University of Colorado, Denver in the Muscle Performance Lab and uh, is interested in optimizing rehabilitation for medically deconditioned older adults in post-acute care and home settings. And he was awarded a Kendall Scholarship from the Foundation of Physical Therapy in 2014 and a fellowship for the geriatric research through the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy in 2015 to support his research examining the role of home physical therapy in enhancing function and reducing rehospitalizations for medically complex older adults. He is also the primary investigator on a research grant from the American Physical Therapy Association section of health policy and administration looking at the role of physical therapists in models of transitional care for older adults after acute hospitalization. And this episode was great. We cover a lot of topics. 
Um, we talk about our fresh PT graduates prepared to manage older adults, the push for more medically necessary research funding for the growing baby boomer population, Jason's top strategies to break cemented patient routines, how to properly dose exercise for the geriatric population, and much, much more. So uh, without further ado, let's get to today's podcast, everyone. Enjoy Dr. Jason Feldy. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thanks, Karen. I'm really excited to be here, sitting here in my old doesn't equal week t-shirt, courtesy nice. of uh, at Dustin Jones in the Senior Rehab Podcast. Um, all right. So today we're talking all about uh, physical therapy for the older adult or for that geriatric population. So before we get started, where did your interest in this population come from? It's a great question. Um, and like most physical therapists coming out of school, I was uh, in New England ready to uh, be an athletic trainer or physical therapist for the Boston Red Sox. You know, that was my entire uh, plan going through PT school. And then when I graduated, I realized most of the jobs that were available were in the geriatric population and took the best job that I that I thought I could get the best mentorship in. And just ended up falling in love with that population, working in outpatient uh, geriatric neuro balance and falls prevention for, for a year and just absolutely fell in love with it and was reasonably good at it and just built my expertise from there. And now I study it for a living. Right, right. And you also have your uh, geriatric clinical specialist. So can you talk about that and what the process is to go about getting your GCS in case other people listening uh, want to do the same? Sure. So there's a couple of different tracks. So um, there's more, more geriatric residencies now certainly than when I graduated from physical therapy school. And that's the one track that, that people can do a one-year residency and then take the uh, specialty exam. The track I took was uh, getting 2,000 hours of clinical practice across a number of settings. So I worked outpatient, inpatient rehab, and home health, um, which is actually the majority of my practice hours now. And got 2,000 hours, applied for the specialty test, studied for about a year, and then you take a very lengthy and expensive exam. Uh, but it's a terrific investment because it opens a lot of doors for you teaching, consulting, and, and presenting-wise, um, and really helps you uh, solidify your knowledge of, of geriatrics, not just as a single clinical setting, but how to integrate cardiopulmonary and integumentary and the medication and all of those things together and, and be a, a physical therapist who practices using the entire scope. Yeah, so being a little more holistic, looking at the person as a whole person. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's essential in geriatrics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's that was a great explanation of the GCS, and I think uh, hopefully people will hear that and think, hmm, maybe that's something I want to do. Um, okay. So let's get into the, in your opinion, where do you feel like the profession of physical therapy is in relation to the geriatric population? Where are we on the scope of of the medical within the medical field, and just within the scope of physical practice itself? So, I mean that's a that's a, a nebulous question. So you could ask a hundred people and get some different answers. But 
my opinion, seeing it from you know the 10,000-foot view now in the research arena, is that geriatrics is still a very underserved population despite uh, an incredible amount of attention on that population in the last five years. Um, you know, healthcare reform has really opened our eyes to um, Medicare beneficiaries and transitions between settings, especially older adults and, and the, the struggles that they have and, and the amount of disability uh, that's present in our, in our culture. Uh, the statistic I use a lot to kind of highlight, like, where I think we are a little bit in physical therapy is relation to geriatrics is disability affects 13% of the U.S. population and the NIH's budget for rehabilitation um, you know, studies is about 2%. So there's a really big mismatch there between what we do as rehabilitation scientists and, and, and really a primary role in fixing uh, disability versus what the actual funding environment is. So that's, that's my 10,000-foot view. But when you go into the weeds of you know, the clinicians that are practicing in geriatrics, I'm so heartened to see so much energy from clinicians really focusing on optimizing exercise intensity for older adults and a whole clinical class being created by the geriatric section about exercise expert for aging adults and just how to get physical therapists thinking about these things. So while I think we're behind, I definitely think we're heading in the right direction as and, a profession. And what do you think the profession can do or is there something that the profession can do to increase funding for, for uh, research? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the foundation for physical therapy right now does fund like new PhD students that are coming through and studying different areas. Um, and they do try to represent all the practice settings. So actually, there's two of us in our lab that have funding from the foundation for PT to do specific geriatric research, which I think is, is a, a testament to the investment that they want to make in, in new researchers and, and getting people excited. You know, um, the geriatrics uh, section certainly supports research uh, grants for more established investigators as well. They're small, but they certainly can get people off the ground. Um, it's just very hard to get people interested in doing some of the research in geriatrics um, that, that's really higher level. Like when you get into like NIH funding, like it becomes it becomes difficult to attract where, you know, Conditions like neurological conditions sometimes have uh, more more sex appeal. I would say, you know, like they're 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 a little bit more, uh, you know, the, the science and the public media attention is much higher on those things. So right, which is kind of fascinating, given that the baby boomers are now considered in the geriatric population and mm -hmm. also are consuming a lot of our healthcare dollars. Yeah, and a, a large amount of our healthcare dollars. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's. They, so many of the things that they have are what we consider unsexy problems, like ADL disability. You know, d difficulty with activities of daily living is a relatively unsexy problem to write about in a research grant versus, you know, deep brain stimulation for somebody with a neurological condition. And both of those things are very important, but I think um, the relative research dollar importance that's put on those things is... Uh, is mismatched sometimes to the prevalence. Right, right. Okay, well, you know, hopefully that is something that can change in the future, hopefully. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, big kudos to the Foundation for Physical Therapy for really helping to promote some positive research in the geriatric population. 
um, which is so important. Now, let's go into working sort of down in the trenches, outside of the uh, research, take your researcher hat off and go mm -hmm. into your clinician hat. Yeah. And what do you feel is the state of PT as it relates to older adults now? So let's say PT education, uh, pe students coming out of school, and, and the people that maybe you're working with or that you're speaking to across social media, where do you feel like the physical therapy world stands on that, the rehabilitation of the older adult? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think different PT programs have different ways of preparing students. So um, I have taught in a PT program in the past that their geriatrics course was a very um, academic course. Like it was just teaching about, um, you know, the statistics about aging and very little hands-on about how to assess and, and manage the older adult. Um, so some programs have, have that. Some programs don't have specific classes for older adults. They just integrate it across the curriculum, um, which is important because geriatrics is everywhere. So if you think about cardiopulmonary populations, heart failure, COPD, those people are often also older adults. If you think about you know the, a lot of the women's health issues that people are treating and, and really spearheading, you know urinary incontinence affects older adults uh, in a very high percentage. So even if you're practicing in a non-geriatric setting, you're seeing older adults. So it's so important to integrate across the settings. But I also think that that PT programs really need to have a class specific to the older adult as well because there's so much differences. Older adults are just not older young adults. They're, they're a different population entirely. Um, and older adults at 65 are different than older adults at 85. And I see that PT students often miss that. You know, it, I am nothing like my mother. My mother's exactly 20 years older than me. So if she was 85 and I was 65, we'd both be older adults with completely different values and completely different life experiences and expectations for treatment. And I think that's where sometimes those things get missed when you, when you don't have um, a solid background in, in geriatrics. Yeah, and because a lot of programs have separate pediatric programs. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so, and... So it's sort of having that combination, just so if I'm hearing you correctly, having that combination of integrating geriatric issues throughout all courses, but then having a separate class directly for older adults. Yeah, it just helps you put all the pieces together. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that's there's there's so many emerging issues with especially in this country with medications, you know, that's totally different for older adults versus younger adults. You know, there's a lot of emerging social issues, the disability, socioeconomic status, Medicare, Medicaid issues, you know, the entire post-acute care system. And then if you look in the last five years, you know, the, the, the challenges and, and, um, you know, changing expectations for treating older adults who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, transgender. I mean, those things are becoming a little bit, people are a little bit more open about those issues, and they have very unique healthcare issues as well. And some of the big geriatric societies have started to put out position statements of, of how best to, to approach and, and manage that, that patient population who's often has vulnerabilities to depression and anxiety and, and fatigue kind of more than you would expect in an older adult population. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, I think 
being able to successfully integrate caretakers, whether that be family or whether that be, you know, hired help that may have to uh, be 100% involved in the care mm -hmm. of the older adult, especially after an illness or an injury. And I think that's oftentimes overlooked. And, it, you know, we had spoken before about Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. And I, I loved the book and I thought a big part of it that was so interesting is, you know, decades ago, as your parents aged, they moved in with you. And now as the, we have a more aging population, that's happening less and less for a whole slew of reasons that we're not going to go into um, in this podcast. But now people are being more put into assisted living or into nursing homes. And then you have that compounded kind of what you just said about anxiety and about depression. And, and that can certainly affect the physical being. Absolutely. And I think some of the shift is that as older adults age, they become more and more, you know, fair or not, defined by physical disability, right? I mean, they, they define their life around what they can and can't do. That's the primary motivation for maintaining a specific living environment is, you know, can they physically be in that environment? You know, so a lot of times for, for family caregivers, quality of life isn't the driving choice for those things. It's physical disability. And again, you said for a myriad of reasons, but because physical disability is so central in a lot of those decision-making processes, that's where we as rehab professionals really have a strong role to um, support um, caregivers. Because think about caregivers are often older adults too, especially caregivers of people with dementia are often spouses that are also older adults with their own physical frail issues and then taking on the incredible responsibility of caring for somebody with uh, a progressive and and sometimes very unpredictable course of of medical uh, of medical complexity. Right, and and mental capacity, which you know is 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 certainly something that I think all of those things play into the health of the older adult, and it's a big area where physical therapy can be injected to make such a positive impact. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to, on social media earlier, the, I don't know, what was it, like two days ago? Did we do this yesterday? I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, um, we sort of put out like uh, that we're doing this interview and so we had people ask some questions and we had some really, really great questions that I want to get to. So one was from Dustin Jones, who is the host of the... Um, of his uh, podcast, why am I blanking? The Senior Rehab Podcast. The Senior podcast. Rehab Podcast. Sorry, yeah. Dustin. God, I'm the worst. <laughs> I am the worst. Talk about being unprepared. I just had like uh, a moment there. Okay, so Dustin asks, why should DPT students consider geriatric PT versus, like you said, I want to work for, you know, the Boston Red Sox or... I want to do sports because that's sexier. That might be might be more exciting. So why should DPT students consider geriatric PT? I mean, so we we kind of touched on this earlier, and I will you know use this as my foundation that being knowledgeable in successful optimal aging 
is valuable to you not just as a geriatric practitioner but across the spectrum of care. So even somebody with an orthopedic certified specialist, you're treating joint replacements, you're treating people who are older adults. We've talked about women's health. Even pediatrics, older adults with developmental disabilities, you know, you have to have knowledge, you know, it, you might be a pediatric person that's treating, you know, somebody across the spectrum, but knowledge of successful aging for somebody with a developmental disability incredibly valuable. So you, you would need to have knowledge in both areas. Um, we've talked about integumentary and wound care, which often affects older adults. Um, so I could go on and on, but everything, every practice area, knowledge of successful aging will make you a better therapist. So I think if you're, if you're a geriatric specialist or have good knowledge in that area, I think you'd be an incredibly valuable asset to any healthcare organization. That's, that's number one. Number two is I think the impact you can make on somebody's quality of life is highest in geriatrics. You know, and that might, I might be biased because I am a geriatric practitioner and that's nothing against my pediatric colleagues who I'm sure definitely impact a, a child's quality of life. But I have had so many experiences working in people's houses where I've gone in and seen a train wreck and been able to invest time, energy, and, and just you know patient-centered care, figure out what their goals are, and it might be something as simple as getting them access to public transportation so they can go out and do stuff outside of their house. And, and maybe it's simple, but the, the amount that that improves their quality of life is almost immeasurable, just between being homebound and being not. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I had a patient last week that I saw for the first time and her goal was just to leave her apartment, mm -hmm. to go downstairs, pick up her mail and come back up. And then long-term goal was to be able to walk a block so she could play bridge because she has been homebound for such a long time. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it, it doesn't have to be huge lofty goals that can make such an impact into someone's life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's also a, a setting, I think, in geriatrics where your skill level makes a tremendous difference. So if you get extra training and you really apply the strongest evidence-based practice, the, the gap between you and the average therapist is high. Like there is a huge difference in the, in the outcomes that you'll get. Whereas maybe I don't often see that in orthopedics. And again, that might be my bias, but from research trials that I've seen recently, like high-intensity versus low-intensity therapy for highly motivated patient populations that are pretty healthy, the, the differences are relatively negligible over a year for, um, for things like total joint replacements, whereas for older adults, the difference between high-intensity and low-intensity exercise is you know, maybe the difference between functional independence or, or being homebound or not. Yeah, so. yeah, huge differences. And you know, in, in talking, you know, we're talking about this older population, you know, what comes with age sometimes are longstanding routines, right? Mm -hmm. So Josh Karnowski, who's a student physical therapist in Missouri, see that I can remember, Dustin, I can't. <laughs> um, he, he said, which strategies have you used most successfully in getting older adults to change their longstanding routines? Because, you know, a lot of times, you are going into, when you're working with an older adult, maybe you are a bit of a disruptor to their routine and to their life, all for good reasons and all for, based on their values and reaching their goals. 
But what have you used uh, successfully to get them to kind of change that routine? Yeah, and that that's a, a good question. And I, I think I have a, a good perspective to answer that because in my home health setting, I often worked in uh, a population that was pr- primary Medicaid in Wyoming, rural, socioeconomically depressed. And a lot of the patients I had seen had had experiences with PT in the past that were suboptimal, I'll say, and that, you know, to, to bad, <laughs> to probably malpractice. But <laughs> we don't need to get into that. No. But... No, but there's there's so many things that I think a physical therapist can do to improve that approach. And one of those things is immediately from the first session is promote autonomy. These patients that we see often, you know, they're homebound, they're often not really, you know, either respected or, or valued or heard by medical professionals. You know, um, a lot of their complaints are kind of brushed off as normal aging, whereas somebody like an expert geriatric practitioner would recognize that there are certain um, things that they're reporting that aren't normal aging. So really getting in, promoting autonomy and putting power in their hands immediately to, to, to take charge of their care is some of the most successful things I've had. And it's surprising how, how you know, how refreshing that is for patients and how much they open up after the first session when you have gone in and said, okay, these are the things that I see. What do you have to add to this? What kinds of other issues might you have? What kinds of strategies do you think will work for you? And just asking that question, putting power in their hands, um, that, that immediately brings down some barriers. Um, I think physical therapists also have to be very cognizant of how depression and anxiety manifest in older adults. Um, This is something I teach pretty often when I've taught geriatric courses before is younger adults, depression often manifests as, you know, the the mental, they're they're sad and they're, you know, they, they cry. Older adults, depression often manifests as apathy, low appetite, fatigue, low motivation, low activation. So... Sometimes somebody who's depressed and you don't recognize that and you don't give them the extra opportunity to, to buy in, the little bit of extra time um, and, and that autonomy, I think you really can, can put up walls between you and them that are, you know, if you, if you don't fix that quickly, it, it, can be, uh, it can be a significant barrier to treatment. Well, if you do have this person who is exhibiting you know, this depression, anxiety, apathy, fatigue, low motivation, what do you do? So, yes, you want to promote autonomy, but how? What sort of strategies can can one use to do that? So, what I will say is that older adults are different than younger adults in this way. Like, I think you have to be one, you have to be a little cognizant of each individual patient. So you have to recognize that each patient has a little bit of a different experience. Some, especially the older generation, are very stubborn and very um, resistant to using things that make them look disabled. Um, so I think you have to really start by educating that disability and physical limitations are not are not a negative thing. That's how a lot of them have been raised, like, you know, limping or using a cane or using a walker is an incredibly negative stigma in society. So I think you have to do a lot of work to break those things down. I often tell stories of similar patients that I have that have had 
good outcomes or, you know, or I might make the decision to, you know, tell them that it's 50-50 if they fall and break their hip that their next birthday might not be so happy. So, um, but I, but I, I pick and choose, you know, which patients need a little tough love and which patients need, you know, a little bit of hand holding. And I often engage caregivers in those conversations um, because a lot of times the first visit, you're there, you're giving them a lot of information. It's overwhelming. So you get the caregivers involved and just ask them to follow up on a couple of simple messages. You know, you, you find two things that you think are most important for that patient to take home from your session. And maybe it's, you know, I just need to get up during the commercials of my TV show and move around a little just to just to make sure that I'm doing well. And you use the caregivers to to be your proxy for that, and then you also engage the physicians. And I tend to find that's really helpful because older adults listen to physicians; they trust physicians often. And if you can get healthcare providers all giving a same message, I think that's incredibly valuable. Okay, so just to recap, uh, if you're sort of coming upon the older adult, that is. Uh, that is experiencing depression, anxiety, apathy, fatigue, low motivation. And I have a follow-up question in a second. Um, mm-hmm. What you can do is uh, use patient stories to kind of help them maybe feel like they're not the only person experiencing this. Mm-hmm. Um, reiterate that disability is not necessarily a negative. Um, engage caregivers to follow up with simple strategies and that means like you said maybe two strategies not ten um, mm-hmm. and engage the doctor so that you're kind of presenting a unified front so I guess my next question is when do you refer out when when do so, you say "Ooh, I, I think I might be in over my head here yeah so I I almost always think that if you're treating an older adult, you should have some sort of depression screen. And, you know, and so in home health settings, those things are built into the OASIS questionnaire. And, um, and I think that's helpful. Um, in a lot of the post-acute care settings are already built in. But I always think there should be some sort of depression screening. And that might be even just a two question, the PHQ-2, where you're asking is a couple questions about their their willingness and, and desire to be up and doing things if they've if they've lost desire to to get up and do things that are meaningful to them, um, and I think you should always refer out. I don't think it's necessarily um, something that you should stop treatment for and wait. I think a lot of that stuff is in tandem. You at least let the docs know um, because I think there's so many other medical issues going on with many of these patients. So they're they go to the doctor and they're getting their diabetes under control and they're getting their diuretic load figured out for their heart failure and they're getting their their inhaled medications for their COPD and that doctor's got 15 minutes to get all that figured out and they got their hands full. So sometimes depression goes undertreated. Um, and one of one of the things I, I tell physical therapists is depression isn't just like a, a, a sideshow to what you have going on in physical therapy or a barrier. Phys- depression is specifically and directly linked to physical function. Older adults with depression have lower levels of physical function. So you may be seriously impaired in your ability to meet rehabilitation goals if you're not addressing depression. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And then again, uh, let's say you you you're not using Oasis. Can you uh, say one more time what uh, depression that PH two Q depression screen? Yeah. So 
I'm actually going to I'm going to bring it up and I'll read you the questions right now. Perfect. So I can I can do it exactly right. But there there's multiple um but this is a short one and what they ask you to do is they ask you over the past 2 weeks how often have you been bothered by any of the following problems? And then you ask them how often do you have little interest or pleasure in doing things? And then you ask them it's not at all several days, more than half the days or nearly every day. And you ask them if they've been feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. And then it's the same scoring. Not at all, several days, more than half the days, or nearly every day. And probability, even with one point on those, so even if they've had those, any one of those symptoms for several days, the probability of depression is 37%. Mm. Once you get to three points on those scales, it's 7 percent that they have wow. some sort of clinical depression. Um, now, how that gets best addressed, that's probably outside the scope of my practice, but I certainly know that it's our responsibility to refer, at least get that conversation started with the physician. And things that we can do to help depression are things like physical activity is fantastic for, for anxiety and depression in older adults as well as younger adults. So we can certainly be giving those things as supplemental ideas without saying that we're treating the depression. Right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. And then that kind of takes me into the next thing that uh, I wanted to talk about, which is another great question from Josh, and that is he sees a lot of PTs tell older patients to exercise slowly, but the literature supports higher velocity. What are your thoughts on this? But before we even get to that, can you define what higher velocity means? Because I think... I just want to make sure that our definitions are clear. So when we're talking about it, people know what's up. Yep. So so high velocity has has some different meanings. But if you're talking about it in the context of like a an exercise, like a therapeutic exercise, like a leg press or like a long arc quad or squat or something like that, when when they say high velocity. Like and and you know the other kind of uh, parallel term might be power training. Um, that's typically done at the maximal voluntary velocity that a patient can generate. And it's usually lower loads, you know, somewhere in the 40 to 60% of one repetition maximum at maximal voluntary velocity. Um, so that's, that's the definition, the foundations. Um, I would say that most therapists don't have patients do those exercises for a couple of reasons. And one is do no harm. A lot of therapists are a little concerned, and off my discussion with home health therapists especially, that high-velocity training takes a lot more skill and, and technical expertise on both the therapist and the patient side. So you have to trust that your patients can do it correctly and safely without your supervision if you're giving it a, like a home exercise program, for example. And, and some therapists are a little concerned about patients' ability to do that. Um, that concern is not misplaced. Um, most of the research on power training has been done on relatively healthier older adults, and the results have been pretty good, not significantly or strikingly better than low-velocity resistance training, but there are certainly some, some benefits that you get. Um, when you look at highly disabled populations you know, with severe mobility limitations or very frail, 
those those become the populations where the evidence is a lot less, you know, a lot less strong for power training. Not to say that it can't be used on a case-by-case basis by a skilled therapist, but I certainly think that if you're trying to get a patient engaged and, and to do an exercise and you want to err on the side of safety, I think it's perfectly appropriate to do low velocity versus high. And when you're so when the you have your patient come in and you are sort of mapping out their their program, so their strength training program or their therapy program, uh, do you feel that physical therapists are properly equipped to do that efficiently with the older adult? And if if we are, great. If not, how do you think we can get the knowledge necessary to do that? Yeah. So. Short answer is not necessarily. I think a lot of therapists are – they know the the principles like the American College of Sports Medicine book. You know, They know that 60 to 80 percent of one rep max is kind of um, what, what the strength training literature should be. But then you look in practice across home health, post-acute care settings. What's typically being done is um, – and what I've published on before is general conditioning activities. This is what I define as these – you know, activities that don't really have principles of exercise. They're the seated long arc quads without any resistance to an arc and um, without failure or fatigue. Um, I typically see that a lot. Our national surveys of therapists tend to support that that's done a lot in home health. Our observations of therapists in our lab and skilled nursing, uh, that tends to be done. So I think what's missing is the is the technical expertise, the hands-on piece to say, you sit down, you put a TheraBand on somebody, you can do high intensity with a piece of TheraBand if you know exactly what you're doing and you really pay attention to form and quality and, and really get people to go to fatigue or failure. And I don't think that's done very often. And I think that's a fault of a lot of PT programs who don't integrate the hands-on piece for older adults into those things. Um, And I find I've had very skilled therapists that we've trained to be in our home health clinical trials to to deliver these interventions. And I'm surprised at how much of a learning curve that is sometimes. And what are the outcomes of, let's say, uh, that type of, we'll just take the example of the lung or quad or, you know, using a TheraBand, low velocity, but going to fatigue. What are what are the outcomes of that? What is that showing? Are they, are they showing greater cross-section of muscle? Are they showing uh, strength gains and, and ADL or functional gains, if you will, with that kind of training? Yeah. So the majority of the literature will support that people definitely get stronger. So that's probably the, the key thing is they will generate more force, be able to lift more weight doing 80% one rep max strength training. Cross-sectional area, occasionally, um, you know, the studies are more mixed, um, but there's a very, very poor relationship between, for older adults especially, between um, increases in cross-sectional area and increases in strength or functional performance. Um, And this has actually come to light with some of the, like, testosterone studies that they've done with older adults where they've supplemented testosterone or growth hormone or some of these things, and they've seen improvements in muscle size but the actual improvements in muscle strength aren't necessarily linear with that. Um, so, so muscle performance and muscle size definitely aren't as correlated in an older adult as they would be perhaps in a younger adult. 
Um, and, and some of that's nutritional as well. You know, protein, yeah, yeah. protein energy malnutrition and, and, and protein synthesis is definitely a little muted in older adults. So Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, and then what about, we kind of talked a little bit about this before we started, um, but when you're talking, and this was something else that I think was thrown out on Twitter, but when you're talking functional movements, are you talking functional movements for that patient to do ADLs or functional movements as defined by the Gray Cook style type of thing? Yeah, and I think that was a good question from yeah. Josh. Yeah. Um, so the way we've designed our clinical trial has been based on what we we, we consider like a task specific ADL training. So we've we've gone to specific ADLs that people do, and this is where we integrate in the speed of movement component. Um, my personal philosophy is that you know integrating speed into movements that patients are a little bit more comfortable with is a little bit safer and also functional. Um, so sit the stands, for example, teaching those that you know maybe getting the chair up a little, but teaching higher speeds. I think that's where I tend to integrate in the power. Um, and the literature for frail older adults um, is is relatively supportive of these task specific ADL training as long as you're getting um, some element of of overload or going into fatigue. So maybe you're doing ten repetitions of a sit to stand. If you're going to fatigue where that patient can't get an eleventh one with good form, then you're definitely contributing to to improve strength and and power. And as well as are are there neuromuscular changes? You know so. So uh, is that enough, again, by Josh, so is that enough to change neuromuscular traits? Yeah, or so do there, you need to pair it with more, you know, let's say it's great doing so, functional training, but do you need to pair that also with breaking down those gross movements into more muscle-specific movements, I guess? Yeah. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, that, that, that absolutely makes sense. So... I mean, as far as like neurological changes that go along with some of these things, I've I've seen literature that has said as little as one resistance training session can improve reaction time for an older adult. So you can actually see improvements in reaction time over a day um, of one resistance training. And and if you want to put that in context, you know, one appropriately dosed therapy session and you improve that reaction time, you potentially could be preventing a fall. You know, yeah, that person absolutely. has a tenth of a second better reaction time, you could be preventing a fall. So I definitely think there's a lot of neuromuscular benefits that are early in in older adults and, and a lot of the early strength gains that we see for these people are motor control-based strength gains. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's for low and high intensity exercise, but the sustainable gains come from from better dosed exercise for sure. However, I think that therapists sometimes swing the pendulum way too far onto function and forget about their skills and movement observation. So the example I'll give is we were training a skilled nursing facility to integrate higher intensity therapies into, um, into their programs for these medically deconditioned older adults. And I watched a therapist, you know, trying to follow the protocol and, and having patients do sit to stand. And I saw so much movement compensation and hyperextension of the knee and, you know, some serious issues that would tell me that there was, you know, a lot of quad weakness that that person was compensating for doing 20, 30 repetitions of that exercise 
when that person's compensating and not loading that limb at all, you're not going to improve quadricep strength. And, and the example I give is if I gave you a book. Do you read Spanish, Karen? No. Okay. If I gave you a <laughs> Short book. Answer. I, no. I give you a book in Spanish, and I tell you to read it, and you know you you read through, you don't understand any of the words because you don't know the foundational Spanish language. And then I have you do a hundred repetitions of reading that book. That hundredth time, you're not going to be any better at it because I didn't fix the foundational issue that you didn't know some of the basic vocabulary you needed to understand. So the basic vocabulary of functional movement is, you know, some of this movement, you know, some of the, the clean movement, you know, so maybe you're making sure you know that the muscle strength is appropriate to be able to do that movement. I see the same thing with gait training. If somebody has some significant ankle dorsiflexion range of motion limitations that are really limiting their gait, having them continually walk hundreds of feet with that compensation and never addressing the, the functional deficit, you're, you're really limiting yourself in the gains that you can make because you didn't fix the vocabulary issue um, at the foundation of that movement. Yeah, so it really sounds like uh, especially with older adults, just like you would with an upcoming athlete, right? Uh, an injured athlete returned to sport. Um, with the older adult, you still have to look at the quality of their movement and, and be able to look at the quality of movement and then break down into the component parts about maybe what needs to happen in order to improve that overall quality at the component level. Yep. And I think that is really hard for young clinicians to do because you either get the repetitions of function without any movement observation or you get so bogged down in suboptimal movements that you see you could watch an older adult do a movement and you could pick out 20 things that are not, you know, the range of motion in this hip doesn't look quite right or that hip strength is four plus out of five and really could be better, you could really get lost in the weeds. So really picking the critical functional issues that that promote that movement without um, getting lost in, in, in all the, the suboptimal deficit. Right. So I, I think that's hard. It's very hard for new clinicians to really sort that out. And um, that's where, um, you know, good mentorship really does help. Yeah. And, and good mentorship and good experience and... Mm -hmm. I think staying current in, in literature and just doing, right? Just yep. doing, 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 doing more and more. Um, so where do you think, you know, you have physical therapists coming out, whether new grads or, or out for 20 years, right? Do you think people get bogged down in the stats about aging versus learning really how to assess the older adult? And if so, what can we do to rectify that? Yeah, I think I think people do get really bogged down in the stats. Like we we see like the CDC statistics on disability and aging, and we all know that the aging population is growing and baby boomer this, you know. And and all that's important to kind of keep in context of why geriatrics is important. But I think there's very limited hands-on experience with older adults and, and doing really high quality treatments in PT programs. Um, I know we have just started doing that in our program, bringing in um, older adults for for, Peyton, for students to actually work with, and you know, older adults with not just healthy but across a spectrum of disability. 
Um, we did that when we trained for our clinical trial. We brought in older adult volunteers to help our clinicians really figure out how do I take this medically complex person and, and get them on the floor safely to do these exercises, you know, things that, you know, you did that in a skilled nursing facility, every administrator in the building would be sounding alarms, but it's incredibly functional and, and therapists just don't have the confidence to, to know how to work with older adults and, um, you know, and, and feel confident doing some of these, you know, higher level skills. And so a, ton, a lot of times, and, and probably rightly so, they're more, way more conservative than they should be because they don't have the confidence to, to push it and, and feel like they can supervise it safely. Uh, no, that that makes uh, confidence makes a huge difference, and and that also plays over into the uh, into the person you're working with, right? Because if you don't, if you're kind of coming at this person a little ho hum or being a little unsure of yourself, I don't think that bodes well for the person you're treating. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, and I have a little bit of advantage because I'm six foot one and almost two hundred pounds, so patients trust that I can get them up off the floor, but if somebody your size went up and, and said, hey, I'm going to put you on the floor and that patient's, you know, 240 pounds, they're going to look at you and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Oh, you yeah. Know? <laughs> no, I've done that. I did that recently, actually. I I had a, a patient who he had had a stroke and he was, you know, much, much better walking pretty much without a cane, but he couldn't get up off the floor. And his wife, who's smaller than me, there's no way she's getting up off the floor. And so I put some mats down and I said, okay, we're going to get down on the floor and then we're going to stand back up. And he was like looking at me like I had 10 heads. I'm like, no, 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 I can do this. Trust me, we're going to do it. And you know what What it was? It was, and I think this is also important, uh, an important point to touch upon, especially when you're working with an older population, is your verbal cueing needs to be on point. So what was so interesting with this gentleman was he had all the strength in the world to get up off the ground, mm -hmm. but he didn't know how to sequence it properly mm -hmm. in order to achieve that goal. So we sequenced it properly using good verbal cues, and he got up off the floor without my help. I was just there, just there to supervise. So I think that's also something that, that is missed a lot um, is... You know, it doesn't always have to be brute force. It could be simple verbal cueing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, you know, the, the example I always give people is I've walked into multiple hospitals covering acute care and read nursing notes as a cyst of three people to get this person out of a chair. And I'll go in and I will contact guard assist, do the exact same thing that they did three hours ago with four people because they just didn't take the time to educate, get them in the right position, you know, walk them through the instructions. And um, so I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that verbal cueing and education and, and that's where experience and, and good, good geriatric hands-on experience is incredibly helpful. Um, and I love your example of teaching people to get up off the floor. It reminds me of another patient I had who routinely had to call the fire department because he'd fall and he his wife couldn't get him up. And one of our primary goals, because she was just embarrassed to always have the fire truck in front of her house. And 
we were able to work on it over a month and you know then he fell a couple times because he didn't listen to any of the instructions she gave him but she was able to get him back up and he was perfectly safe and you know reduce their fire department bills by half and, right. you know, i saved the system some money and made their quality of life better so exactly and and also you know falls are such a huge thing when you're talking about older adults and it can really really debilitate a person and talk about cutting down their quality of life, right? So if if there is anything that you can do to help that patient, and this circles right back around to what you said at the start of the podcast is improving the autonomy within that patient and within that household for that matter, right? So let's not talk let's not forget about the other people living in that household who also need a little autonomy help. And I think that example that you just gave is a great example of let's keep this person at home uh-huh. because we now have yeah. the tools that, you know, we feel confident that we can do that as a team within the home, not just the patient themselves. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think, I think when you think about falls and, and, you know, losing autonomy, there's a lot of fear associated and anxiety associated with that, both on the patient level, but also on the caregiver level, you know, because they, the caregivers especially see their loved one fall and, and can't, you know, maintain independently and they're scared that they can't handle them at home. And then, it, you know, there's a lot of financial issues that come along with think, considering long-term care and, you know, higher levels of care, injury. Um, so I think, and then once you have that much fear, there's a lot of hesitation and then there's a lot of, okay, well, we'll just stay home so we don't risk going out and having a fall and adds more depression, adds more anxiety. And, and you can see how that can be a, a vicious yeah. circle. And, and, and also adds to the lack of physical function. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, there's that's where that cycle, and we're probably the most uniquely positioned healthcare professionals to break that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that um, what also needs to really, another thing that I, that I would love to ask you is how often are you seeing physical therapists bringing in the caretaker, whether it be uh, a hired caretaker, a spouse, a daughter, whomever, a son, whoever is helping with the care of this older adult, how often are physical therapists bringing the caregivers into the whole treatment session? And and should they be? Yeah. So actually, this is one positive that I see is I do think physical therapists are really good at integrating caregivers. Um, skilled nursing facilities, like they're their whole goal is to get people home. So they really do spend the time to work on car transfers and, and show caregivers, you know, safe bathroom transfers and safe guarding techniques for stairs. I um, in home health, I think it's inevitable that caregivers are going to be around, you know, and I think therapists really do encourage caregivers to be involved. And um, so I've shadowed probably 20 different home health therapists in the, in the Denver area and observed, you know, maybe that same number of skilled nursing facility therapists as part of our, our research and and that is one consistency that I've seen is is the therapists are really good as a team trying to get the family involved. Right and I think that's great so if you are a therapist and you're working with the older adult make sure that you are integrating everyone involved with that person right okay so uh, one of the last questions I have for you and this is from Dustin and it's, what are you most excited about in the world of geriatric PT other than Karen, that's me, 
Um, <laughs> just so people know which Karen. Other than our talk at <laughs> APTA CSM 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I will tell you guys that I definitely love this old doesn't equal weak message. And one of the things I am excited about in, in geriatrics is that there is so much more attention being paid to disability as an outcome for things like in, um, you know, for post-acute care and um, for a lot of quality reporting metrics. So I, I look and say, you know, finally physicians are starting to get on board with the idea that physical function isn't just a cute little sideshow to the real medical issues that are going on, but physical function is its own independent risk factor for so many adverse outcomes like hospital readmissions, all-cause emergency room visits, falls, um, and then, you know, cognition and physical function often uh, run in tandem. So improving physical function often accompanies an improvement in cognition. So I think there's an increased recognition that that how people move and, and interact with their community is not just a you know nice little side secondary outcome, but it's a primary outcome. And I've seen it in some physician trials over the last few years where activities of daily living are primary outcomes of physician trials. Now, they haven't included physical therapists in those trials, so there's my own, you know, <laughs> we still have some work to do, but I think we have, we have successfully promoted the message that mobility is important, mobility is a quality of life issue, and exercise is medicine, and then we need to integrate those things across the spectrum. Yeah, beautifully said, and you're also excited about our talk. Absolutely, okay. I'm excited about All your right. talk. Just making I'll, sure. Shameless uh, plug. I'll be there as long as it doesn't overlap with uh, the two other talks I have to give. <laughs> oh, well, what talks are you giving? Let's give you a shameless plug. Yeah, so, so Dr. Ridgway and I will be presenting on hospital readmissions and physical therapists. So we're going to build on some presentations we've heard um, at CSM previously and really talk about this idea of, of physical function as a strong independent risk factor for hospital readmissions and, and how physical therapists can kind of include themselves in these models of care that are working on improving transitions from the hospital to the home or post-acute care setting. So we'll talk about how do we communicate about function with other physicians and between healthcare settings. Um, it, a lot of that information gets dropped between the silos that are hospitals, home health agencies, and skilled nursing facilities. And Healthcare reform is forcing some some better communications across the spectrum of care, and we're going to talk about how physical therapists need to take a take a role, take it by the reins, and uh, and, and really and really have a strong voice in some of those discussions. So that's the first topic, and then I'll also talk about how to use big data sets, Medicare data, to help us understand optimal physical therapy practice and show the value of physical therapy um, for older adults. And I'm going to use Medicare home health data as an example of how we can take um, you know, ADL and disability outcomes and show how physical therapists are, are um, reducing costs across the, the spectrum. Great. Well, it sounds like um, some great talks. So congratulations. And Yeah. And what are what research are you working on now that people can look forward to? Can you say? Are you allowed to talk about that? Is it like top secret stuff? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now nah, they're all publicly reported. Oh, okay. So um, 
So we have a clinical trial ongoing right now with the Veterans Administration where we're working on um, hospital-associated deconditioning. So that's um, there's a paper published in, in Physical Therapy Journal last September that is from our lab with that, that I was the first author on that we talked about, you know, hospital-associated deconditioning and, and just medical deconditioning in general as a very under-recognized issue after hospitalization. Like, we're really good at recognizing uh, medication issues and heart failure management, but the disability that comes after hospitalization and, and people that go into post-acute care settings with a primary diagnosis of deconditioning or mm-hmm. debility actually have the highest readmission rates compared to people with hip fractures or stroke or heart failure. They're, they're the highest out of everybody, yet we're the worst at treating them. It's, we're, we have very general treatment approaches for people that are just medically deconditioned. Um, so we've really promoted higher intensity exercise for those people and, and a paradigm shift and how that's approached. So we're taking that paradigm and applying it to veterans after hospitalization and looking at um, how high-intensity therapy improves outcomes over the course and up to six months after hospitalization um, compared to usual care, kind of more conservative, lower-intensity approaches. So that's that's one trial that we have going on that's uh, in our lab, and I work I, I train therapists and, and do some fidelity oversight of the therapist treatments during that trial. Um, we also have a similar trial where we're doing culture change in skilled nursing facilities where we do high-intensity um, exercise training for a whole skilled nursing facility staff and then look at their outcomes before and after we implement high-intensity training across the spectrum of skilled nursing facility residents. Um, we look at outcomes like hospitalizations, ER visits, and then um, recovery of function and physical performance. Um, and then the last project that I work on that I'll be presenting in Boston here this weekend is I work with a, a network of um, clinics that's part of the PACE system, which is the Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. And that's a, a dual-eligible Medicare, Medicaid, uh, long-term care organization where it takes people that would be nursing home eligible but gives them services in the community. So they have aggressive support in the community, um, access to rehabilitation services in a, in a central facility. They're transported to and from a, a day facility every day. Uh, so we work with that organization on um, we've implemented widespread like uh, assessments of physical performance for all of their residents on a, on a routine basis and we're using those assessments to predict who's at risk for hospitalizations, ER visits, and falls and building them a clinical decision-making tree for when they assess these patients how to, how to manage and, and try to reduce emergency room visits and hospitalizations in this population. Well, that's incredible research, and I am definitely look forward to your outcomes on all of that and what a difference that can make uh, across the healthcare system as a whole, but down at that individual level of the individual person. I mean, that's the difference of perhaps staying at home versus having to go into a facility, right? Yep, absolutely. So, and, and- yeah, because hospitalization, ER visits, and falls often start a cycle, you know, mm-hmm. of repeat admissions, nursing home admissions, and the community discharge rate nationally, once you go into a skilled nursing facility from a hospital, is only 28%. So on, on a national basis, only about a third of patients that enter a nursing home from a hospital stay are discharged to the community within 100 days. Mm. Terrible. 
Anyway, I, I think your research is fascinating, and, and hopefully it will be able to kind of get that percentage up to maybe 50% instead of <laughs> there. I mean, what a jump that would be, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if people want to get in touch with you, you're on Twitter. So what is your Twitter handle? So I'm at, at JRayFalvey, um, and I'm... I'm an up-and-coming Twitter user, so... Yes. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And if people want to learn more about your lab, is there information that they can... Is there someplace you can direct them? Sure. So the University of Colorado Denver, so ucdenver.edu, and we're part of the Muscle Performance Lab. So um, that's the lab. It's directed by Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley, and there's a number of us who do research and aging across a lot of different areas. Um, so there's links to us and our research um, that are currently being updated. Um, and I would say that our our physical therapy program and, and PhD program rehabilitation science is certainly a good resource for people wanting to know what we're up to across the, the, the field of uh, rehabilitation science and, and aging science. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time out and coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Really, really enjoyed being on here. Good, good. And everybody, thanks so much for listening and have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. And don't worry, all of the information that uh, Jason just said will all be in the show notes. So if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, you can, there will be links to everything. So go there and you can get all the links and you can also follow me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. So thanks for listening and have a great week. Okay. We are right. done. I just have to stop the recording. Here.